Turn with me in your Bible this morning to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to consider here in just a moment the first five verses of the chapter. You know, with all of the uh, negativity that you see online these days, the the internet can be a wonderful thing, especially if it helps reunite you with a long-lost relative. Uh, Just a couple of years ago, there was a South Korean woman named Anne who was living in London, and she discovered that another woman named Samantha from California was her long-lost twin sister. And she made this discovery while watching a YouTube video in which she saw a woman who had an identical resemblance to herself. Well, the girls, both in their mid-20s now, they had been adopted separately when they were infants and had lived their whole lives in separate parts of the world. And so after seeing Samantha, who is an actress, Anne knew that she had to get in touch with her to find out if she was hallucinating or if she really did stumble upon her long-lost twin sister because the resemblance was just too obvious to deny. Well, according to ABC News, Anne did a Google search of Samantha's information, and she found out that they had the same birthday, and both of these girls were adopted. And so it was then that she decided that she would reach out to her doppelganger on Facebook, and she soon got her answer. And she confessed that Samantha's Facebook page was mind-boggling to her because it felt like she was looking at her own pictures. How, How true it is that a family resemblance is hard to deny. I'll never forget the first time that I went with Anita to her family reunion, and I was just making much of the fact that her dad looked so much like his siblings, his brothers and sister. And when she accompanied me to my family reunion, she said the same thing about my family. You probably have said the same thing about your family. And often, one of the first things that's often said when a new baby arrives on the scene is the resemblance that that baby has to mom or dad. The statement is made to, these, to this effect, oh, she has her mother's eyes, or he has his father's nose and so on and so forth. It's a biological fact that children will in some way resemble their parents. Uh, We pass along certain genetic traits to our offspring, and the older our children get, the more often we tend to see that this is true. It's true biologically, and it's also true spiritually when it comes to those who make up the family of God. We could say that there is a certain kind of family resemblance that we share among believers who are part of the family of God, and this is something that is explained by the Apostle John here in this passage of Scripture, 1 John chapter 5, verse number 1. I want you to read with me what the Scripture says, beginning with verse 1. John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. 
For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I want to speak from this subject this morning, the family resemblance. Within this passage of Scripture, the Apostle John mentions several character traits that are true of those who make up the family of God. There is a certain family resemblance that's true of each of those who are members of the family. Now, you'll notice at least three times that the Apostle John uses this phrase, born of God. Uh, He uses it a couple of times there in verse 1. He also uses it there in verse number 4. And so he's describing those who are in the family of God, those who have been born again, those who possess the life of God inwardly. These make up the family of God. Now, we've seen throughout our study of this letter that John presents us with a series of tests by which we can discern whether or not we've truly come to know the Lord. And he does this for the sake of assurance. He wants his readers to have assurance that they know Christ as their Savior, to be confident in the fact that they are saved. Uh, One of these tests is the moral test. Do I consistently obey the commands of God in his word? John deals with this uh, in in the first several verses of chapter 2. And then there's the social test. This involves the way that we relate to others within the family. Is there a, a love that's been poured out in my heart? Do I love my brother? Do I love my sister? This is the social test. And then John has dealt at length with the doctrinal test. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come in the flesh? And so you have the moral test, the social test, the doctrinal test, and and John has dealt with each of these tests at least two separate times for each particular test. And you'll notice that as he's bringing his message to a conclusion, now that we've come to this fifth chapter, He sort of weaves all three strands of these tests together into one. And you'll notice uh, words like belief and love and obey. Each of these are words that are mentioned within these first five verses. And so John is simply saying that all of this will be characteristic of the one who truly has come to know God and is in the family of God. You might could say that these make up our spiritual genetics as the children of God, and each of these three strands come together within this passage of Scripture. And the Bible has a lot to say about how believers are part of the same family, and we share the same spiritual DNA. It's the work of God's Spirit in our lives as Christians to make us all uh, members of the body of Christ. This is something that the Apostle Paul explains in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. He, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And that simply means that there's a commonality that we share with one another as the children of faith. There's a family resemblance. 
And without this family resemblance, one should question whether or not he or she is truly in the family. And so according to the Apostle John, what are these common traits or characteristics that we share as members of the family of God? Well, he mentions several of these. Number one, notice it begins with spiritual life that originates with God. Spiritual life that finds its origin in God himself. John begins here in verse 1 by saying, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The scripture says that God is the ultimate source and cause of life. We know that he is the architect and the originator of life. Uh, life finds its genesis in him alone. That's true for life in the physical sense as well as the spiritual sense. We read in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created everything from nothing, and he did this by means of his omnipotent word. The very same word that spoke life into existence, well, God is also upholding and sustaining that life. There is no life apart from God's word. Uh, When it came to creating man uniquely in his own image, the Bible says that God did two very specific things. Uh, First, Genesis 1.26 says that God said, that is, he spoke, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then secondly, Genesis 2.7 says that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. So God, as he's created humanity in his image, man lived by the word and the breath of God. And so when Adam sinned, he died spiritually, and eventually that means that he would die physically, and so we now live in a world of death and darkness. We die physically because man is born into this spiritual death. That's true of the human condition. In Adam, all have died. However, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that it's in Jesus Christ that all shall be made alive. How so? It's only by means of the word and the breath of God. Uh, It's as the word of God is implanted within the heart, that faith is generated, that spiritual life is produced, and that's why salvation is the impartation of divine life, and it's a miracle. And if you're in the family of God this morning, it is nothing short of a miracle. You and I are miracles. If you're saved and you're a Christian, you are a miracle. And someone says, do you believe in miracles? Absolutely, because I am one. I am what I am solely by the grace of God. And that's true for every child of God who's been born into the family. And so a couple of things worth mentioning about this. You'll notice that John says it involves a specific belief. He says there in verse 1 that it involves this common belief in Jesus. This is what distinguishes the true children of God. There is a commonly held belief, a shared conviction, a mutual declaration of belief that Jesus is the Christ. And this is really a continuation of the same point that he made back up in chapter 4, where he argues that if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, we do so because it's the Spirit of God who enables us to do so. It means that it's evidence that the Spirit of God has taken up residence in my heart and life. He says this in chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Why? Well, because he's given us his spirit. 
And if the Holy Spirit is in me, then that means I am in God and God is in me. And a person cannot believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, unless God dwells in him and he in God, which is something that John explains in verse 15. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, when he says, no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And so if you've come to exercise faith and you've come to declare with your mouth that Jesus is indeed Lord, this is evidence of the Spirit of God at work in your life, proof that God has done a marvelous work in your life. And so this is a specific belief. And then John says that this involves a spiritual birth. And it's amazing that this, this belief, this faith, is both a condition and an indication that there's been a spiritual birth. The common belief that Christians all share is that Jesus is the Christ. And verse 1 says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Uh, the verb there, translated, has been born. This is in the perfect tense which means this is an event that has happened in the past but has present, ongoing results in my life. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That means there's been this impartation of divine life. It's, it's the same language used in John 3 when Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus. How is it that a person enters the kingdom of God? Jesus says you've got to be born again, Nicodemus. To be born again means to be born from above, born of the Spirit. Peter says the same thing later on in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And just a few verses later, Peter is going to say that believers have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding Word of God. So as the Word of God has been planted, it's producing fruit, and life is produced as that seed is germinated. And so faith is both a sign and it's an indication of the new birth. This is an amazing thing. So you say, well, is, 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 you've got people that shake out on different camps when it comes to salvation. And those of you seminary students, you've probably been in those conversations. Is it all of God's sovereignty or is man responsible to believe? People say, what do you think, preacher? To which I simply say, yes. <laughs> it's both. Are you, are you listening? You're responsible to believe the gospel. We're to take the gospel and we're to scatter the precious seed of the gospel and share our faith with people. And yet, we know Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And yet there's this element of mystery to it that it's the work of God in a person's life to convict that person and to draw that person to faith in Jesus Christ, which means when you and I stand and we share the gospel and we declare the gospel, we can trust that the gospel will always do what the gospel always does. God said his word will not return to him void, but it will produce. Has it produced in your life? Then God be praised for that. All of us have our own unique testimony of how we came to know Christ. And yet, all of us have entered into the family of God the same way, through the same means. 
that someone shared the gospel with you and you heard the message. The Spirit imparts life. You've been born again, and this is your testimony of faith. For some of this, uh, for some of us, this was something that happened when we were young. For others of us, perhaps this happened later on in life when you were an adult. Uh, maybe it was an experience much like uh, the experience that Saul of Tarsus had, a Damascus Road experience that was instantaneous and immediately life-changing. Others, others of us may have a testimony that it was repeated exposure to the Word of God and regular exposure to the gospel. But the fact remains, folks, that we now possess this spiritual life which originates with God, and this is the family resemblance. We've all come into the family of God the same way. What's the way? Well, there's only one way. Jesus says in John 10, I am the door. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And so there's this specific belief and a spiritual birth. And then notice John says it involves a special bond. Look at the last part of verse 1. He says, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. Which means that as a Christian, you're not an only child. Now, a lot of people want to think they're only child when it comes to the Christian faith. But no, you've been born into the family, which means you've got family responsibilities. I had two younger sisters. I was the oldest, and let me tell you something about my baby sister. She may be watching online. I just got to be careful here. <laughs> my parents had let her get away with murder. <laughs> huh? I'm not resentful at all. You can tell that, by the way. I wasn't an only child, and, and spiritually, you're not an only child. We've been born into the family. And this family resemblance involves a love for the Father, and it involves a love for whoever else has been born of Him. Love for the Father, this is true of all of those who are in the family. Evidence that God's done a work in your life. There's love for Him. And those who are in the family now have a special bond with one another. I know you're familiar with that chorus that says we are one in the bond of love. One in the bond of love, for we've joined our spirit with the spirit of God. We are one in the bond of love. And that's true. And so there are obligations toward the Father and to his children. We're to love one another in the family because we now share in this common birthright. And the implication is that we all have the same father as believers, which makes us brothers and sisters. And as those who've been born into the family of God by the same word, the same spirit who's come to live within us, we're now members one of another, which means that you have more in common with your brothers and sisters in the faith than your own blood relatives who don't know Jesus. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians chapter 3 says it this way, In Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the basis then for our unity, it's not, it's not our first birth, it's our second birth. This becomes the basis for our unity. 
And if we try to build unity on the basis of our first birth and the things associated with this world, the flesh, all of those things are doomed to fail. And that's what you have going on in our culture now that so wants unity, but it doesn't want truth. And because it doesn't want truth, it can't experience unity. Tony Evans says it this way, especially with regard to the race issue. He says the reason we've not solved the race issue in America after all these years is that people apart from God are trying to create unity, while people under God who already have unity aren't living out the unity we possess. And he says the church has already been given unity because we've been made part of the same family. And so there's spiritual life which originates with God. This is the family resemblance. It's true within this local fellowship that we're part of the family of God, but it's also true of the greater uh, universal church. I don't know if you've ever spent time on a mission trip or the mission field, if you've ever gone into a context where you are in a country meeting with a group of believers who don't speak your language. Maybe their culture is totally different from your culture. But upon meeting and interacting with those brothers and sisters, there's something immediately that links your heart with their heart, and it's the fact that we're in the family of God. We may not speak the same language. We may not look the same, but we both have God as our Father through faith in Jesus Christ, who's our Lord, and that's something that brings us together. It's the very thing for which Jesus prayed in John 17. So this family resemblance, it's it's something that involves spiritual life which originates with God. Now, notice the second thing. John says that it also involves love that obeys the commandments. Spiritual life which originates with God, but also characteristic of the family, is a love which obeys the commandments. As soldiers in a common battalion, all under the same commander, we march to the beat of heaven's drum. And John says it this way, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So according to the apostle, love for God and his family, this is not something we merely profess with our words, rather it's something that we practice. And that means that the essence of love for God is not found in emotional intensity, but in moral integrity. And that's something that cuts against the grain of our culture, which says, increasingly says stuff like this. Well, if you love me, then you will let me do what I want to do. How dare you ever oppose me or disagree with me on any issue? If you really love me, you would let me do what I wanted to do. We live in a generation that wants to separate love and obedience. Even within the context of much of the professing church, But let me tell you something. What God has joined together, don't let man separate. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The world says, if you love me, you'll let me do what I want to do. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. And it will be evident that the work of God uh, is showing up in your life. The Spirit of God has changed you. So this is something that we will demonstrate John says in verse two, I can know that I love the family of God and have truly been born of God when I demonstrate that love through obeying his commandments, which means that love is practical and specific. It's never something confined to mere sentimentalism. 
So you go back to what he said in chapter 4 and now what he's continuing to say in this fifth chapter. John wants us to know that agape love is love that expresses itself through obedient action. Uh, Think about what he's already said about how this is true of God's love. The God who is himself love sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And specifically, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is John's argument back in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And so the son, he demonstrated his love for the father through perfect obedience in which he laid down his life in sacrifice. Which means that the very heartbeat of God's love is the sacrifice of God's son. What does the love of God look like? What John has told us, it looks like Calvary. It's the sacrificial death of the Son of God in the place of sinners, in obedience to the will of the Father. And so the Son has sacrificed himself in the display of his love for us. And so listen to this. He expects no less than the same as we display our love for him. Which means that our love for God, this is something that's going to be gauged on the nature of our sacrificial obedience. I love the fact Jesus loves me and so sacrificed himself for me. But now, let me get you straight. What you're saying, Pastor, is that my love for him is demonstrated in that same type of sacrifice? Yeah. Which is why Jesus said, if you want to be his disciple, you've got to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and follow him. See, love, our understanding of love, it's, you know, we love ourselves and we want to tout our will. It's all about my rights, my rights, my rights. Agape love is love that lays down its life and surrenders its rights. It's the mind of Christ described in Philippians chapter 2. And so this is our demonstration, but then it's our delight. Because John says in verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now listen to this. And his commandments are not burdensome. Other translations say it this way. uh, His commands are not grievous. Which doesn't mean that obedience is an easy thing or something that's never painful because obedience is often costly and painful. But what John is saying here is that it's not a heavy burden for the child of God to obey the commands of his father. And this is the opposite of the religion of the Pharisees. You remember when Jesus denounced the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23? Uh, Here's what he said. He said, they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves aren't willing to move them with their little finger. And the idea is that the legalism of the Pharisees was concerned only with the man-made minutia, all for the sake of appearance, so much so that it burdened the consciences of men and women. It was all about ladder climbing. If I can climb the ladder high enough, then surely I can climb the ladder into the presence of God himself. But here's the thing, you can't ever climb that ladder high enough. And so the religion of the Pharisees did nothing but cripple and paralyze those who came under their heavy yoke. This is why Jesus says, in contrast to them, Matthew 11, he says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And Jesus said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You say, how can you make such a statement? Because listen, when we come to him in faith, placing our faith and trust in him as our sacrifice, as the one who kept the commands of God with perfection, and now his righteousness has been given to us as a gift, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, and the fact that now he places his spirit within us to empower our obedience. Now, as children, we're not begrudging of a father who loves us. Because love for the Father compels us to obey. He's changed us from the inside out. It's the new covenant which has been fulfilled. Jeremiah 31, verse number 33. The law of God has been written upon our hearts. And so obedience is from the heart. And it's done with a sense of joy and eagerness. And so now we gladly lay down our lives for Christ's sake. So, love that obeys the commandments. This is, this is the family resemblance. Spiritual life that originates with God. One third and final thing that I want you to consider is this. Notice how the family resemblance also includes a faith that overcomes the world. Verse four, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. So faith is the believer's victory according to what the apostle writes in verses four and five. And notice the power that's at work in my life and your life as a believer. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. Underline everyone in your Bible because it means there's no special class of overcomers. There's no multi-tiered Christianity. Uh, there's not a certain group of individuals who've sort of discovered some type of secret, uh, possessing some type of secret knowledge that's led them to experience victory that the common, average, ordinary Christian man or woman could never experience. No, John says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. To be born again of the Spirit is to overcome the world. What does he mean world here? Well, back in chapter two, he says that the world refers to this organized system which is opposed to the things of God. He's going to say later in verse 19 here in chapter five that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Why do things like shootings and supermarkets and 10 innocent lives just gunned down in a senseless act of evil and violence. Why do those kinds of things happen? Is God to be blamed for that? Well, there's a group of people in our culture who says, yeah, God's to be blamed for that. No, listen, the whole world as a system lies under the evil influence of Satan in rebellion against God. It's the consequences of sin and man's rebellion as evil is on display. And yet, as we're confronted with that reality day in and day out as we live our lives, listen to what the Apostle John says. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. Were it not for the victory that Christ gives, I'd still be in bondage to the world. I'd still be dominated by my flesh blinded by the devil, living only for the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life. I like what David Jackman says. He says, ever since the serpent's doom was pronounced in Genesis 3.15, 
that his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. The enemy's tactics were to destroy the people of God and so prevent the coming of the deliverer. By the way, that's what you see him doing all throughout the Old Testament. Why is it that Pharaoh and his taskmasters were so very hard? Well, it's because the evil one was stirring up antagonism and persecution. You see it with Nebuchadnezzar. You see it with the Assyrians. You see it with the seed of the serpent manifesting itself in various ways to try to defeat the people of God and prevent the coming of the deliverer. And Jackman says, since Christ has come, all the devil's efforts have been directed toward denying his deity, destroying his humanity. But once a man or a woman comes to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the enemy's hold on that person is broken forever. If you've come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, let me tell you, the enemy's hold on you has been broken. And listen, this is the key which opens the prison house and sets the captive free. This is the victory which overcomes the world. It's our faith. Which means that for the Apostle John, faith is not just positive thinking. We don't have faith in faith. Faith is not simply this glass half full kind of outlook that we apply to life the power of positive thinking. No, Christian faith always has an irreducible content. And that content is the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his finished work, all that he's come to do. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So so notice here, when he's using this language of overcoming, twice it's present tense, but once he uses the aorist tense there in verse 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world. In other words, there's something that's happened in the past. God has done something in real time God has entered space, time, and history to do something that we look back to, we place our faith and our confidence in. We're not hanging our hopes on some kind of invisible skyhook. No, we're looking back to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this, my friend, is the basis for our hope. This is the grounds for all assurance and confidence in my life as a believer. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. And this is our faith. I want to show you something. If you look there in verse 1, notice how John begins this paragraph with a statement concerning Christ. Notice he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. He says that in verse 1. And then he concludes this paragraph at the end of verse 5 by referring to the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Here is our victorious declaration as the people of God, that Jesus is the Christ, and he is the Son of God. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it ought to. Go to Matthew chapter 16, because in Matthew chapter 16, this is exactly Peter's declaration of faith when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Matthew 16, verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter, you've not stumbled upon this knowledge and you've not made this confession in your own wisdom. No, this is something that the Spirit of God, this is something that my Father himself has revealed to you about me. The Son of God incarnate. And I say unto you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. You see, that's victory. That's overcoming. And, and, and Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so here is our victory as believers in the family of God. We simply take what we know to be true, what we've come to place our faith and our confidence in, and we appropriate this daily in our day-to-day -day affairs, day-to-day -day living. It's not so much something great. It's not extraordinary feats of greatness that God is looking for in your life. And sometimes I think we get so discouraged and we look at our life and we think, man, I just don't seem to have accomplished a whole lot. I seem to be struggling with these same old sins and the same old depression that just keeps showing up ever so often, rearing its ugly head. These same old issues. And yet, here's what John is telling us. As the family of God, what we need to do is we need to take what we know to be true what we've come to place our faith and our confidence in, and we need to apply it daily to even the small little things that tend to weigh us down. And faith in Jesus, this is remaining faithful to his truth. It's continuing to serve him day in, day out, in the mundane, in the average, in the ordinary. And this is how we live as the committed followers of Jesus Christ when the world around us seems to be getting so dark. This is the family resemblance. Spiritual life that originates with God. Love that obeys the commandments. And faith that overcomes the world. Let me ask you this question. Are these character traits being produced in your life? Can you say with confidence that they are? then you know that you're in the family. But if not, I've got good news for you too. You can enter the family the same way. Through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and experiencing the new birth. Let's stand for prayer this morning. What an encouragement this is to our hearts. John says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And as the sons and daughters of the family of God, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so this is something we need to preach to ourselves every day, especially when we're discouraged as believers, especially when we feel outgunned and outnumbered, overwhelmed by crises and situations beyond our control. No, listen, what is it that overcomes the world but our faith? And it's not faith in faith. It's really faith in a person and the object of our faith. Our faith is no better than the object. And the object of our faith is the victorious Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the unique God-man.
The one who's overcome the grave through his death and resurrection, conquered sin, conquered the evil one, conquered death, given us his own life through the person of his spirit who's come to live within us. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And this is the faith that overcomes the world. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord today, what's keeping you from turning from sin and placing your faith and trust in Him today? Hmm? Why not surrender? Why not repent and place your faith and trust in Jesus in this declaration that He is the Christ? He is the Son of the living God. Believe that He died for your sins and that He rose again from the dead and confess Him as your Lord. And the scripture says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And the Bible says that the way that we declare our faith publicly to the world is through believers' baptism, where we publicly and openly identify with Him and we identify with His family. Aren't you grateful for this family resemblance? It's true of the family of God all over the world. And you're a miracle if you know Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word. And conform us, Lord, into the image of your son, Jesus. There's only one way into the family of God. We've got to be born into the family. Born again through faith in God's son. And Lord, I pray that as we take this gospel message to our neighbors, and as we share it, and as we encourage people to repent and come to faith in Jesus, Lord, you may want to use us as an instrument in someone else's life. And we might be privileged to see a birth take place. Someone who's far from God coming to know Jesus. Lord, take these words and do your work in our hearts and lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.